Hello, everyone. This is Richard Beatty, and you're listening to Useful to God. Dr. James Spencer is out this week, but he had a panel discussion before he left on artificial intelligence, uh, which we've been talking about for a while. As the co-host of this program, I, I edited it, and I, uh, I it brought back some memories. My Scottish grandfather back in the 60s, he loved to wash dishes. When my parents bought a dishwasher, he thought he was being replaced, so he kicked the thing. I felt the same way when I received this video about AI co-host. Listen. Co-host AI is a groundbreaking tool from Buzzsprout that seamlessly integrates AI into your existing podcasting workflow. It'll automatically generate titles, descriptions, chapter markers, and a complete podcast transcript, freeing you up from doing these often time-consuming tasks. The good news is that AI co-host can never replace me. Just kick it, Richard. Hey, welcome, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us today. We have a couple special guests with us, and we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. This is a topic that we've been addressing uh, for some time now here at Useful to God Ministries. My name is Dr. James Spencer, and uh, I have with me a couple special guests. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Um, Derek, why don't you go ahead and start? Yeah, I'm Derek Sherman. I'm a professor of computer science from, from Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've done some research in the area of artificial intelligence in my in my doctoral program. And more recently, I've been writing and thinking about um, perspectival issues and, and thinking about AI and faith and, and related issues uh, more generally. And of course, I teach uh, computer science to, to students here at Calvin and try to teach them how to do so responsibly, you know, how to... You know, with great uh, power comes great responsibility, right? So uh, in, in the field of AI, that is also the case. Very good. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for thanks for being on. Jason, how about you? Yeah, my name is Jason Thacker. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy and ethics at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky, the undergraduate school of Southern Seminary. I also am a research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and oversee our research institute. And uh, I've long looked up to Derek and followed his work and somebody who very early on challenged me to think, how does, what my, what does my faith have to do with some of the big, big pressing questions, especially in the public square, including artificial intelligence and social media and technology and to think wisely about how we navigate a lot of the, the opportunities, but also some of the significant challenges before us. And so looking forward to diving into some of these topics. Very cool. Well, let's hop in. We won't waste any time. What I think the, the just a basic question we probably need to address is what is artificial intelligence? I'll, I'll take you guys' answers and then maybe I'll ask a couple follow-ups. We'll see where we go. But um, Jason, why don't I start with you? What, when you think artificial intelligence, what are we really talking about? Yeah, and I think Derek might be the most qualified to kind of start off answering this type of question. But I mean, when I... I think that that question of what is AI is actually one of the most important questions we can ask, because if everything's AI, then nothing is AI. Um, and today, especially, we're seeing a lot of um, mis kind of application and misinterpretation of the term. So when we say AI, many of us think of this kind of dystopian future where the robots rise up and we think about this kind of sci-fi, almost super intelligent future. And other of us think about the basic algorithms that we engage with every single day from our thermostats to our social media feeds to um, important things like ch uh, generative AI or chat GPT and things. But essentially my kind of ethical and philosophical understanding. I'm not a computer scientist or developer like Derek, 
Um, but when I think it's, it's non-biological intelligence or the ability of a machine to perform complex tasks, um, often human-like tasks, um, in a very complex manner using various data and structures and things that Derek um, obviously teaches the next generation on how to do. Yeah, so Derek, anything to add to that? I mean, what are we looking at? No, I think... I think that's a pretty good definition, right? It's generally defined as uh, any simulation of human intelligence by machines. Intelligence, though, is one of those what someone once called suitcase words, right? It sort of carries along a lot of other baggage. When we think about intelligence, we tend to attribute uh, more, perhaps, than is intended in, in, in the definition by some. I would add that it includes a whole bunch of subfields, you know, areas like natural language processing and machine learning and computer vision and robotics and more recently data science and so on. But uh, but I think that's a, that's a good starting point in terms of a, a definition. As I've watched some of the applications of AI, what I see is people asking these AIs sort of to prognosticate about the future, Right. What's this stock going to do? What's that stock going to do? You know, when we when we look at these things, should we? How should we be thinking about that intelligence beyond sort of a, or does it really go beyond any sort of high level computational reasoning? And so, you know, when we're asking these questions, we're expecting it to be gathering more data, maybe than we can put together. What should we really be thinking about as we're interacting with this type of intelligence? What type of intelligence? would you describe it as? There, there is this sort of distinction between data and knowledge and wisdom. And, and computers are very, very good at manipulating data um, numbers and, and crunching them and, and processing them through algorithms. And that can sometimes lead to some wonderful insights. And of course, they can <clears throat> they can perform things that we as humans would, would find quite difficult, just massive numbers of computations. But when it comes to, you know, discernment and wisdom and being able to kind of make sense of some of these things, I think that's where uh, we ought not to sort of hand off to machines things that we should be doing ourselves. So, so the question is, you know, using machines for things that machines are good at and then recognizing what people are uniquely called to do and where people uniquely bring responsibility and, and hopefully discernment and wisdom into the process and then finding ways to use these machines to help us in our, in our, in our, in our calling and in our responsibilities, but not offloading to these machines, things that we ought to be uh, discerning ourselves. So, and, and Jason's written a lot about that. Do you see a concern for us start giving up parts of what it means for us to really be human in order to start plugging in and depending on maybe is a is the right word um, for artificial intelligence? Yeah, I feel like you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's in my research, especially when it thinks about how we think about AI, distinctly from a Christian perspective, one of the most kind of fundamental questions that AI raises is simply what does it mean to be human? And uh, Derek kind of alluded to this when he said the idea of intelligence is kind of one of those suitcase words or uh, a word that carries a lot of baggage. I remember early on, I was writing about AI and warfare, and I had a very uh, astute scholar kind of point out to say, the whole idea of artificial intelligence is a misnomer. It's mislabeled. I mean, it's not truly intelligent. And there's a lot of truth to that in the sense of how we define intelligence. So one of the things I try to do with my students, especially when we engage in high-level discussions like this, is say, let's define our terms. What do we mean when we say intelligence? What do we mean when we say think? Because it's, it's easy for us when we look at some of these algorithms or we look at some of these systems to say, this system is thinking. 
this system is intelligent. This system seems to be alive. Or we use language like that that's very, very much loaded, especially from a philosophical angle and what we mean by that. And so I think one of the things, the most important questions, and this is really kind of what the questions that technology raises often feel very new. They often feel very novel, like, hey, we haven't been here before. How do we think about this? But the way I like to talk about it is that technology often not only raises more questions than it answers, uh, but most importantly, often um, not doesn't ask us to cause us to ask new questions per se, but to ask these kind of age old questions that we've always asked. But in light of some of the new opportunities before us, some of, as I'll describe kind of the expanded moral horizons, the idea that we can do things that especially at scale that we once weren't previously able to do. And so that idea of what does it mean to be human, I think, is a kind of a central question really for all of ethics and society and politics today, but particularly important in this conversation about artificial intelligence, because we're seeing machines do things that once were reserved for humans. We're seeing machines even outperform humans in certain tasks, especially the speed at which something can be done. Which causes us to say, okay, well, what does it mean to be human then? And this is where, at least in my research, I found a lot of the ways we define what does it mean to be human or specifically from a Christian perspective, an image bearer lacking. We often assume, well, it just means high level reasoning, high level rationality, or it means a relational ability or this kind of representation. And I think all of those capacities have merit, but not all human beings exhibit those capacities at the exact same levels. So if we start to define what does it mean to be human simply based on the things we do rather than who we are, I think that actually is a fundamental kind of shift. And I think that bleeds over into conversations about artificial intelligence, what it is and what it's not. And I wrote in my, my initial book that Derek was so gracious to endorse uh, called The Age of AI, I said that one of the most kind of fundamental challenges we have before us is that we seek to often humanize our machines, give them faces and names and treat them and have these questions about intelligence and humanity and status and personhood and rights and all of these questions. At the same time, we dehumanize ourselves. We assume that we're nothing but a set of matter. We're nothing but a set of kind of organic computers, as one author described. We're just like an organic uh, or just an organism of um, kind of complexity and things like that. And that what we are, who we are really is just reducible down to matter or material. And if you take that mindset, yeah, then you have some really interesting questions about what AI is and what it could be. But when you have a fundamental understanding, I think a biblical understanding of what it means to be human. Even if we think of uh, some, one of the analogies I've been using with people is, you know, we've, we've existed a really long time with bears. Yeah. Um, and bears have capacities that we don't have. They outmatch us in strength. They usually outmatch us in speed. Um, you know, they have all these characteristics and qualities that, you know, if we were just pitted against a bear, we lose. And AI has that same feel. And yet this, for some reason, seems to be um, far more problematic for us to understand how we relate to it. It almost feels like we're being replaced and it's because we put so much emphasis on those things that you said, that rationality, that logic, that ability to think. And, you know, even as we get into questions of consciousness and those kind of things, you know, um, we we've just not done a good enough job with that theological anthropology to to really deeply understand why it is that we're still distinct, still special, still unique within creation. 
Do you think, um, Derek, just out of curiosity, I mean, as I've looked at, again, I'm kind of new to this arena, but as I've looked through things, you know, there are these interesting analogies that go back and forth. That I think really relate to what Jason is just saying. So, so we look at how the uh, technology is actually working. You know, you hear words like the neural net, right? And, you know, neural, um, usually you go to neuroscience and the brain and those kind of things. And so we're, we're starting to make these analogies between biological systems and technology systems. Do you see that as part of the problem or how do you see that as part of the problem as we try to distinguish between, you know, a generated answer from chat GPT versus a thoughtful answer from a, a human, you know, dialogue partner? Yeah, no. And I, I would sort of echo uh, what, what Jason's mentioned. Like the, the enduring question is, what does it mean to be human? And the technology, though, and the language and the suitcase terms that I, I mentioned earlier tend to sort of nudge us to anthropomorphize these machines more than more than we ought to. And, and even the neural network, I think maybe uh, maybe a good way to describe that is a, is a biologically inspired structure, but it's not necessarily equivalent. And, and I think, you know, what, one of the things when we ask the question, what does it mean to be human is, is to distinguish between the fact that, you know, between a, a human and a machine, that a human is not a machine. And, and even if we can simulate certain parts of human anatomy with a machine or a device, um, that we haven't captured the essence of what it means to be human, right? Um, and, and I think one of the things that's tempting in artificial intelligence research and in, in some of the parts of the community is to sort of have a very reductionistic of a, uh, sort of view about what it means to be human, to kind of see humans as, as a kind of, uh, kind of machine that we can then emulate in hardware on another platform. And, uh, and, and, and that has philosophical presuppositions about what it means to be human sort of packed into it. And so, um, I think that's one of the dangers. And so if you start with the premise that humans are machines, then, then to, to attribute to machines human-like characteristics and so on just sort of follows from those presuppositions. But I think, you know, if you begin with the biblical story and you look at how the, how humans were created distinct from the non-human creation, I mean, we're, we're made of the dust of the earth. We have, we have elements in us like other, other aspects of creation and animals and plants and so on. But we're also, you know, distinctly made in the image of God. Um, and as Jason says, if we reduce the notion of image to God to, to certain kind of functional capacities, then as machines, you know, begin to get more and more capable, that, that sort of definition gets threatened, right? And, and so I, I tend to lean towards a more ontological definition that we are the image of God. And, and that has many and very, that's a many splendored thing in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so if you begin with that sort of distinction between, you know, humans are, are distinct from machines, then that leads to different sort of ideas about how we ought to use our machines. This week on Useful to God, Dr. James Spencer and me, Richard Beatty, will begin to unwrap the question, what does it mean to be human? And if to err is to be human, is it then human to give each other some slack? But seriously, folks, to be human, really human, is to have a condition of imperfections and blind spots that are also called sin. James, this is still another issue from the Fellowship of bots, <laughs> and maybe that's the point. Has artificial intelligence given us more room to develop an inferiority complex? Yeah, I think it has. I think, you know, as we even just we think about the term artificial intelligence, it's almost a misnomer. 
intelligence suggests that it's something broader than it actually is. So when we think about artificial intelligence models, what we're really thinking about are reasoning engines. They're computational machines. And so they're doing things that we can do with our own brains. It's certainly a function of, you know, human thought that we would compute or reason through something, sort of run a program in our own minds. But AI, you know, doesn't have the full capacity of human thought, uh, at least not yet. And I would just suggest that even if it did develop the full uh, range of human thought that we can do, that still shouldn't make us feel inferior to AI. So one of the things I've been sort of suggesting to people is that, you know, we've lived in a world where there are a number of different species that are already stronger than us, faster than us, you know, um, more adaptable to certain environments than us. And that doesn't make us feel less human. And so even if AI outpaces us in one or multiple uh, sort of mental activities, we shouldn't feel less human. I think part of what we're dealing with as we think about this sort of inferiority complex that can come up is that we really don't understand what it means to be human and how thought and rationality and consciousness and all of those kind of ideas that we think about when we may uh, that are often associated with AI uh, really relate to what it means to be human. Well, there's a scene in the popular television series Chicago Med where the chairman of the hospital board has touted and financed an AI-equipped operating room called OR 2.0. All was well, and OR 2.0 was a viable collaborator with the star surgeon, Dr. Crockett. And then a routine surgery, which seemed to go well until the patient dies in recovery, gave everyone reason to pause. Turns out 2.0 showed a legion on the patient's screen that really wasn't there. Other docs got suspicious and looked up the data and found the data was missing. In order to protect the continued funding of 2.0, the chairman of the board kept a thumb drive of the botched surgery. Then he told Dr. Crockett it was the doctor's error. And yet colleagues pressed the issue, got the thumb drive, and analyzed the data, revealing that 2.0 had a design flaw. And the CEO deliberately tried to blame it on being human. So what happens when AI makes a mistake? Is there grace? And can it happen where AI causes a fatality or an accident and that gets blamed on the human? And what are the legal ramifications there? You know, I, I think we need to be careful as we you know, sort of think through these scenarios. Part of what I see as the challenge of artificial intelligence is an over -anthrom uh, anthropomorphizing of artificial intelligence. In other words, we're making this a more human thing than I think we probably should. And so we have dealt with mechanical failures for a long, long time. Um, you know, this has been a staple of the car industry, of the airline industry. You know, distinguishing between mechanical and human error is not something that is foreign to us as a human species. We recognize that the technologies that we use, the machines that we build often fail and they fail for a host of different reasons. AI is really no different than that. 
And if we continue to think of it as sort of a more human than it actually is, I think we're going to get ourselves into some real problematic areas. And so there are a number of analogies that are used with artificial intelligence that suggest that it is more human than than it might be. So we often apply the word and and I'm guilty of this, too. I think it's just, you know, sort of lazy speech, but we'll apply words like think or respond or, you know, um, we'll talk about a neural net. Right. Which technically are biological or human terms. Ultimately, we're applying them to the AI. And I think that that's skewing the way that we view it. It really AI is nothing more than a machine. It is not imbued with a, a spirit. It's not imbued as, you know, it's not the image of God. It is not something that has consciousness. And I think there are good theological reasons and biblical reasons to think that it never actually will be. And so, however closely it approximates some of these things, uh, a lot of these questions that are being asked about how do we deal with X, Y, or Z, how do we deal with, you know, AI when it fails? Well, those are things that we actually have precedence for. We have precedence for uh, machines that fail and how we distinguish between that failure and human error. And so I think we we need to be careful as we move forward into the future of AI, not to uh, make this very unique uh, innovation, this very powerful innovation into something that it's not. It is still an, a technological a mechanical tool. It may be a bit more than that, right? I would admit that tool probably doesn't capture exactly what AI is, but it's still not human. It's not something that could be held, quote unquote, responsible for its actions. It doesn't have agency in the way that we do. And so we have to be careful about how we think about these things. So in the scenario that you're discussing, you know, this this, uh, you know, sort of fictional AI that um, gets something wrong in surgery, it's just a mechanical failure. And probably the way that everybody should respond to it is just to say, look, we're going to relook at the processes of how we are depending on this AI to make sure that the next time there's a mechanical failure, we don't fall prey to it that we're going to minimize the risk of mechanical error causing uh, human death or, uh, you know, just, um, you know, difficulties in surgery, for instance. Um, and we're going to uh, make sure that our processes are such that we are highly reliable in the treatment that's given and that we have checks and balances within the process so that the AI isn't just driving things, but that it is uh, influencing things and that the surgeons are using it in a wise way. So I, I think there's, a, you know, I want to be careful about, you know, alerting people or, or suggesting that we're dealing with a new sentient being. We're really not. And we're not done yet. Dr. James Spencer will be back with me next week on Useful to God. If you'd like more uh, information on AI or anything else that Useful to God is doing and how you can be more useful to God please go to usefultogod.org. And we're going to end with the feature Becoming Useful to God. Here's Dr. James Spencer. 
This is Becoming Useful to God with Dr. James Spencer. I'm Richard Beatty. Dwight Moody once said, It's not a long life of usefulness that makes men and women acceptable to God. We must work for Christ and we get salvation as a gift and then begin to work because we cannot help it. James, how do we begin to work because we cannot help it? First, we need to identify activities that hinder us from following Christ. Many activities encourage us to live according to stories that distort or deny God. Setting those activities aside provides us with a space for practices that reflect our conviction that God can do abundantly more than we can ask or think. And second, we need to replace hindrances with helps. We cultivate an awareness of God's active presence by consistently engaging in small, everyday acts of obedience. And as we obey, we will find it more and more natural to do the work of God and so become more useful to Him. Find out how you could become more useful to God by visiting usefultogod.org.